you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. It's after the book of Ruth and before, unsurprisingly, the book of 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of chapter 2. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramaath-Aim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to to Penina and his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless Woman, for, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish His word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. May God now bless us as we listen to the preaching of His word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing now. Father, we thank You for Your grace given to undeserving, needy people like us. We thank You, Father, that for as far back in history as Uh, Your work among Your people goes. We see Your faithfulness. We see Your grace. We see Your power bringing about what we could not do for ourselves. We ask now, God, that You would give us ears to hear Your Word here from 1 Samuel and that we would believe, Father, what it reveals to be true about You and our hearts would be encouraged, Father, from the life of our sister Hannah. I pray that You would give me grace, Father, to speak faithfully and clearly and accurately from the Scriptures. I pray that You would give us open ears, God, discerning ears and soft hearts to hear, to believe, and to obey. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. In 1974, Francis Schaeffer published a short book entitled, No Little People. Schaeffer was a Christian theologian who spent a large part of his life equipping believers to live faithfully in the midst of an unbelieving culture. His book, No Little People, is not his best-known work, but it is still incredibly important. In the book, Schaefer wrestles with two competing realities in the Christian life. The sheer magnitude of God's plan for the world on the one hand, and the striking smallness of our lives on the other. How do these realities go together? Listen to how Schaefer captured the difficulty. Quote, 
It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. But I am such a small person. So limited in talents or energy or psychological strength or knowledge that what I do is not really important. You can hear the tension in Schaefer's words. It is wonderful to be a Christian. For it means that God has brought us into His kingdom. He has made us part of His redemptive plan that spans time and culture. Those are wonderful realities, friends. And God has made us a part of those realities by His grace. And yet, at the same time, our daily lives don't often picture that same magnitude. As Schaefer said, we are small. Our abilities are limited. And there are many days we find ourselves asking, is anything I do really all that important? You see, we know God's plan for the world is massive and it's significant, but it can be hard to square that reality with another mundane Tuesday. It's at this point, however, that Schaefer made the right move. He didn't stop with the tension. Instead, he went to the Bible. And what he found was that in God's economy, there actually are no little people. We are prone to evaluate ourselves and others on the basis of what we can see, but that's not how God works. He doesn't look at outward things like status or power. God's criteria are much different. God values what cannot be seen over what can. In fact, God seems to prefer those whom the world considers small and insignificant. We see it over and over throughout Scripture. In God's economy, there are no little people. And this is especially true for our passage this morning. Today, we, we begin our series in First and Second Samuel. These books recount some of the more significant moments in redemptive history. It's in these books that we see God establish Israel's monarchy, focusing particularly on the line of David. And it is from David's line that the Messiah comes. So, so think about it, brothers and sisters. The roots of Christ's kingship are found in these books. When we declare that Jesus is sovereign over all things, we're declaring a truth that began back here in Hannah's life. These books are incredibly significant for God's redemptive plan. But notice how these significant books begin in verse 1. Not with a trumpet blast, but with the description of an everyday Israelite family. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. For such a pivotal book, it's a rather ordinary beginning. An everyday Israelite living in an everyday town. But that, friends, is precisely the point. This is the truth we will see all throughout this series. God's work is massive. God's plan is significant. And most often, He does that work not through the mighty, but through those whom the world considers too small to count. You see, Francis Schaeffer had read his Bible well. In God's economy, there are no little people. As we look now to the text, you'll notice this is a narrative passage. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are narrative history. So this is a story, in other words. It's a true story, inspired by the Holy Spirit without error and for our good. It's a true story, but it is a story nonetheless. 
And that means we need to pay attention to how the action unfolds, how it moves from one scene to the next. Specifically, this passage has four scenes that move from problem to solution. I'm sure you heard it as we read earlier. The passage begins with great heartache, but it closes with great joy. See, it moves from problem to solution. Understanding that progression tells us how we should proceed. We'll spend time on each of the four scenes asking the following questions. What does this scene mean for the passage overall? And then what does it mean for the life of God's people today? So that's the plan. Four scenes that give us four truths. We begin in verses 1-8 to of chapter 1 where we see God's people in crisis. God's people in crisis. As we said a moment ago, the passage begins in a somewhat ordinary way. We meet Elkanah, an Israelite man living in an everyday town with his two wives, Hannah and Penina. The family's life seems normal enough, you could say. They live in the midst of God's people and they've built their life on worshiping God. But as we read further, we find life is anything but ordinary. There are a number of crises in this opening scene that change our perspective. First off, and most clearly, there's the personal crisis in Elkanah's family. It involves his wife, Hannah, who is the heroine of the passage. Hannah is barren, which is probably why her husband took a second wife in the first place. Barrenness is always a painful lot for a family, regardless of time or history. But in ancient Israel, barrenness was about the worst tragedy that could happen to you. An Israelite family's future hinged on the issue of inheritance. Each Israelite man had a portion in God's promised land, and that portion was handed down from one generation to the next. So, the birth of a son was about more than the joy of welcoming a little boy into this world. It was about the joy of seeing your name, your legacy, your family continue on among the people of God. But Hannah has no children. She lives with the daily pain of a barren womb. And as if that were not enough, Hannah also has a tormentor, Penina, the second wife, who is fertile and cruel. And like salt in a wound, Penina rubs it in that Hannah has no children. It's particularly bad during the family's annual trip to Shiloh where they go to worship the Lord. That's when the pain would be the worst. So try to imagine it. It's not just Elkanah's family that's coming. It's the whole clan that's coming. So it's like a big family reunion. And all the little ones are running around. And that's when Penina likes to lean over and whisper, Where are your kids, Hannah? Oh, that's right, you don't have any. Year after year after year, that's what she does. Elkanah, her husband, tries to comfort Hannah. He gives her a double portion at the feast, which is a clear sign of his love. But even then, he seems to not fully understand how deep her pain goes. Yes, Hannah has a husband who loves her, but that doesn't take away the heartache that she lives with. You see, beneath the surface of this everyday Israelite family, there's a painful personal crisis. That's not the end of the turmoil, though. There's also a national crisis facing Israel. There's a national crisis facing Israel. 1 Samuel begins during the time of the judges. 
You remember the judges. They were unique leaders whom God raised up to deliver His people from their enemies. So we think of Samson and Gideon, Deborah and Barak. These were people whom God used in mighty ways. But, that doesn't mean everything was good. In fact, do you remember how the book of Judges ended? The very last verse reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where 1 Samuel begins. There's no leader in Israel. There's no one out front calling the people to godliness. Leading the people in faithfulness to God's Word. You see, Hannah's physical barrenness actually pictures Israel's spiritual barrenness. Hannah has no son and Israel has no leader. Those two issues are intertwined from the very beginning. So things are far from ordinary here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. It may seem ordinary, but it's not. On a number of levels, God's people are in crisis. But even in this turmoil, there is a sense of expectancy. Notice verses 5 and 6. Twice, the author says the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Friends, that statement is like a veil pulled back a little bit so that we can see behind the crisis. There is a deeper purpose to Hannah's affliction. God is working here, though the end is yet to be revealed. Now, for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, this should get your attention. This is not the first time we've seen the Lord work through a barren woman, is it? We think of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, all of whom were barren for a time, but all of whom bore children who were pivotal in God's plan. And that's what we should take away here at the beginning. Yes, God's people are in crisis. Yes, the crisis is painful. But the circumstances of the crisis actually raise our expectation that God is about to do something. He's about to work. And in an unimaginable way. And note how the Lord is going to do this, friends, through the life of an everyday Israelite woman who seems hopeless. Hannah appears very small here, doesn't she? She appears very small. But it is through Hannah that the Lord will soon unfold His plan for His people. Brothers and sisters, I don't know all the circumstances of your life. But I do know God often works when things seem most hopeless. He delights to use people this world considers small and weak. So whether your life seems very ordinary or downright hopeless, I pray you'll be encouraged here. Circumstances do not determine God's hand. And appearances do not define God's economy. The Sovereign Lord is always working for His people. Even, and we could say especially, when they face a crisis that is beyond their ability. He's always working. That brings us to the second scene in verses 9-18. to Here we see God's servant in prayer. God's servant in prayer. In verse 9, it seems Hannah has finally had enough. The family is feasting, but Hannah rushes outside. As she goes, she passes Eli the priest the man who's responsible for the spiritual leadership of Israel. Eli's going to be important later in the scene, but right now the focus is on Hannah. 
She takes no comfort from the feast. Verse 10 gives us a taste of her torment. She is deeply distressed so that she weeps bitterly. It's a heartbreaking picture. And yet, friends, it's at this moment when Hannah seems her weakest that she is actually strong. She does not go outside to plot her revenge on Penina. She does not run away from her trouble. No, Hannah goes outside to pray, to pour out her soul before the Lord. And as Hannah prays, she does something remarkable. It's remarkable. She relates to God on the basis of faith, not on the basis of how she feels. This is so key, friends. Hannah has two choices as she weeps alone outside of the tabernacle. She has two choices. She can either believe that her circumstances are God, or she can believe that the Lord is God. And by faith, Hannah chooses the latter. She takes what she knows to be true about God, and she presses it down on the pain of her life until faith comes out. In fact, there are two specific aspects of God's character that work like anchors for Hannah's soul at this point. Notice them with me. First of all, Hannah holds fast to the Lord's power. She holds fast to the Lord's power. Notice how she addresses God in verse 11 as the Lord of hosts. You see that? What's striking is this particular name for God shows up for the first time in Scripture here in 1 Samuel 1. It's the first time it shows up. So in terms of biblical characters, Hannah is the first saint to utter this name of God in prayer. And what an appropriate truth this is for Hannah's life. As a name for God, the Lord of hosts brings to mind power and might. God commands all the armies of heaven so there's no situation beyond His ability to work. He can do whatever He pleases for He is the Lord of hosts. So by using this name, Hannah is saying, God, I know that I am weak, but You are strong. You are mighty. You are powerful. You brought water from a desert rock. You can bring life to my womb. That's what she's praying. You see, friends, this name of God is not a dry bit of theology for Hannah. This truth is like an anchor for her soul. She lives here with this truth. Her life is a storm. So she takes hold of this truth about God that cannot change His power as the Lord of hosts. But Hannah's not finished. She also holds fast to the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord's power first of all, and now the Lord's faithfulness. Notice what she asks for in verse 11. If indeed you will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Now, that language of looking on is not original to Hannah. It actually comes from the mouth of God. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus when God calls Moses to lead His people out of Egypt? God says to Moses, I have looked upon the affliction of My people and I've come down to deliver them. You see, Hannah knows God's Word. She knows how God has acted in the past So she takes God's past faithfulness, she claims it as her own by faith, and then she uses it to hold fast in the midst of the storm. By faith, Hannah believes that if God wills, He can look on her affliction and deliver her as well. She holds fast to the faithfulness of God. You know, I've sometimes heard people say the following statement, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. 
Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. The implication is that truth about God is somehow not helpful for everyday life. Well, friends, I think Hannah's life just shows us how misguided that statement is. All she has is God. All she has is God. And do you know what? That's enough for her. It's enough for her. Look down at verse 18. After she prays, Hannah goes on her way and her face is no longer sad. Have her circumstances changed? No, not yet. But she's found comfort in the presence of God. God is all she has, and that's enough for her. Brothers and sisters, I pray we learn from Hannah's life at this point. She is teaching us how to live a Godward life, even when life makes little sense. Her life is a living testimony that God is a very present help in times of trouble. Friends, this is why it is so paramount for us to know the Lord our God. Do you remember that great exhortation from the prophet Hosea? Let us press on to know the Lord. Why? So that we can pass doctrinal exams? No. So that we can hold fast to faith when life is raging and makes no sense. Hannah knew her God. The only way she makes it through this is with God. She studied His character. She knew His words. She remembered His past faithfulness. And now when the storms come, she holds fast to what she knows to be true. Oh, friends, learn from her life at this point. Learn from this dear woman. There is great value in knowing God. For when the storms of life are at their worst, it is God's character and only His character that provides a sure and certain refuge. Learn from her. As we look back to verse 12, you'll notice there is a bit left to Hannah's prayer. She has made her vow to God. If He will provide her a son, then she will return the child to God as the Lord's servant. But Hannah's prayer is then interrupted. You see it there? Eli, the priest, is watching her. He sees her mouth moving, but he doesn't hear any words. So, with all the spiritual discernment that Eli can muster he concludes that what Hannah needs is a rebuke. He thinks that she's drunk. Now, if that seems to you like a strange conclusion to make at this moment, then you're on the right track. We're meant to see Eli here as spiritually dull. You see the contrast? Hannah, who has no life in her womb, is a picture of spiritual life. And Eli, who's supposed to be the lively leader of Israel, is so dull, he can't tell the difference between prayer and drunkenness. That's what you should take away from this moment. But then note how Hannah corrects Eli's misperception. She hasn't been pouring down the wine. No, it's just the opposite. She's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's visibly shaken, not because she's drunk, but because of her great anxiety and distress. Now, what should get our attention here is how freely and openly Hannah has been expressing herself to God. The Lord is no stranger to her, friends. She knows God well enough to pour out her soul. She has held nothing back. And what's most amazing is that the Sovereign Lord has allowed her to do this. Don't miss that, friends. The Lord of hosts who is exalted in power is near enough to receive the tears of His suffering saint. 
One Old Testament commentator has made a helpful point here that we should be gone with all notions that the Old Testament God is somehow distant and not close to His people. False! False! Hannah is weeping. All she can do is weep and God receives her. Brothers and sisters, again, I don't know all the details of your life, but I do know enough to say that there are some significant afflictions in our congregation. We have people here this morning who can relate to this weeping woman in 1 Samuel because they too have great distress of the soul. And if that's you today, I hope you hear the Lord God saying to you at this moment, give me your tears. Give me your weeping. Give me your distress. Give me your desperation. If nothing else, friends, Hannah's life teaches us that the life of faith can and should be honest. Honest. There is no need to hide the state of your soul from God. You can give God your tears. You can give Him your weeping. You can give Him your distress. And do you know what He gives you in return? His nearness. His nearness. His presence. The Scriptures are true, friends. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And He saves the crushed in spirit. Hannah knew that truth. And her life is testifying to us this morning. So I pray you would draw near to God this morning on the basis of His Word. Be be like our sister Hannah. On the basis of faith in God's Word, draw near to Him. He was near to Hannah, and He will be near to you as well. That's what we should take away from this second scene. God's servant is in prayer, and from her prayer, we're reminded that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Let's look now to the third scene in verses 19 to 28, where we see God's provision in a child. God's provision in a child. Hannah finds strength from her time in prayer, and she goes home to Ramah with her husband, and it's there in the course of everyday life that God works. Notice the gracious, hopeful words in verse 19. And the Lord remembered her. Hannah is not forgotten. The Lord has heard her prayer and He gives her a son whom she names Samuel. Samuel's name means literally the name of God. But Hannah appears to be making a play on words here with the Hebrew verb to ask. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew verb to ask. In fact, in verses 28 and 29, Hannah uses some form of this same verb four times. So clearly, she views her son as God's gracious response to her prayer. She has asked, and the Lord has heard. So at this point in the passage, the question becomes, will Hannah fulfill her vow? Will she give this child to the Lord? And here in the third scene, we see that she does. After she weans the child, Hannah presents him to the Lord at Shiloh. It's a moving moment. God's faithfulness has led Hannah to faithfulness as well. The Lord's grace has given rise to Hannah's worship. Now, it's important for us to pause here and consider the significance of Samuel as he is brought before the Lord at Shiloh. Remember, the people of Israel face a national crisis due to a lack of godly leadership. We got a hint of this a few moments ago with Eli's dullness, and we'll get the full picture next week from Eli's wicked sons. So we could describe Israel's need like this. God's people need a faithful priest 
who will lead them in the worship of God. And God's people need a faithful prophet who will speak to them the Word of God. They need a priest. They need a prophet. And Hannah's little boy Samuel is God's answer to those needs. You see, while Hannah's life does picture God's faithfulness, it's also in some sense unique. Hannah's life is in some sense unique. Her, life will, her son will be the faithful priest and prophet for God's people. And what's more, he will also be the one through whom God raises up his king. So do you see those three roles? Prophet, priest, and king coming together here at the beginning of the book. Prophet, priest, and king all here at the beginning of 1 Samuel all coming together in Hannah's child. God is working, friends. That's what we should take away. God is working to provide His people exactly what they need. And notice what drives God to do this. Why does He give her a child? Why does He meet Israel's need? What drives God to do this? Grace. Nothing but grace. Hannah didn't pray the sun down. God overflows here with a gift of His grace. Israel doesn't deserve a faithful prophet and priest. They have spurned God's covenant. And they have repeatedly broken God's law. And yet, what does the Lord God do? He does not abandon them. In His grace, He intervenes to provide what they do not deserve and what they could not get on their own. You see, grace is not a New Testament concept, friends. It's a biblical concept. It's a biblical truth. From the very beginning, God's people have lived by grace alone through faith alone. At every step of our history, it was God taking the initiative to intervene and give us what we had no hope of getting on our own. So when we see God, out of the gracious mercy of His heart, give a son to Hannah, our minds and our hearts should go to God's giving of His own son for us. We rejoice with Hannah in God's provision of a child. And in this provision, we see God's grace. And that takes us right into the final scene, which brings the passage full circle. We began with God's people in crisis, but now we close with God's people in worship. God's people in worship. You can see the climax there in the text. Notice how chapter 1 ends with Hannah and her family offering these abundant sacrifices to the Lord. It was more than enough. These abundant offerings of worship. That worship then carries over into chapter 2 as Hannah offers another prayer. But this prayer is different. Gone is the anguish, and now we find Hannah singing God's praises. That's so beautiful. She's weeping, and now she's singing. In fact, that's how we should view this prayer. It's a song of praise as Hannah ascribes glory to God for what He has done. Now, there are two ways of looking at Hannah's prayer, and both of them are important. The first way is to see it as Hannah's personal expression of worship. God has indeed worked bountifully in her heart, and she overflows with praise because it's true in her life. That's the first way, and it's true. It's important. But in another sense, this song is also about more than Hannah. Her praise here, her expression of praise, actually gives us the framework for understanding all of First and Second Samuel. She is praising God and she is teaching us. So think of Hannah's song here like a pair of glasses. And when you put them on, you're equipped to see 
all the book of First and Second Samuel as God intends. In fact, if you go to the end of Second Samuel, 54 chapters later, if you go to the end of Second Samuel, you will see another song, this time from David. David's song sounds like Hannah's song, so that there's, they're bookending the passage, the, 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 the text. That, that's the clue here, that this is a significant piece in God's Word. So what we need to do at this point is identify the key truths of Hannah's song. Th- these truths will serve as landmarks for us. Time and time again, we will come back to these truths that Hannah sings here in this text. There's three of them in particular. Let's note them briefly together. To begin with, in verses 1, and, 1 to 3, Hannah rejoices in God's salvation. There is none like the Lord, Hannah declares. There is no rock like our God. He is the one who gives strength to His people, and He is the one who delivers them from their enemies. The wicked may prosper for a time, but there is a day coming when God will shut the mouths of the arrogant as He works salvation for His people. Hannah knows this by experience. And now she sings this truth so that we might have the same perspective. The foolish are those who take matters into their own hands, trusting in their own strength, while the godly are those who trust that God will fight for them, that He will deliver them in His timing. So that's the first landmark truth we learn from Hannah. She rejoices in God's salvation. Next, in verses 4-8, to Hannah proclaims God's sovereignty. Her song began in a personal way, but now she broadens the horizon to sing of God's unchanging character. He is the sovereign Lord. Friends, don't miss the absolute terms of verse 6. You could throw out Romans 9-11 through and you would still get God's absolute sovereignty from this one verse. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. The entirety of human life belongs to God. From beginning to end, our lives move according to the sovereign plan of the Lord. And note also how God uses His sovereignty to turn the ways of the world upside down. You see it there in verses 4, 5, 7, and 8. Over and over, Hannah declares that God exalts the humble and He humbles the exalted. Friends, this is how the kingdom of God works. Not through the mighty, but through the weak. Not through the notable, but through the lowly. We hear echoes of Jesus' preaching here, don't we? You remember when Jesus is journeying along with His disciples and they're arguing over who is the greatest? And Jesus says to them, the first will be last and the last will be first. You see, Hannah's prayer stretches out farther than what even she can see. It stretches even to the preaching of Christ. Hannah proclaims God's sovereignty. And then the final truth in verses 9 and 10. Hannah looks forward to God's King. She looks forward to God's King. Notice what she says in verse 10. This this is striking. The Lord will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Now remember, there's no king in Israel at this time. They don't have a king. But by faith, Hannah looks forward to what God will do. She anticipates the day when God will raise up a king after His own heart. A king who will reign over His people in righteousness. But this king will also be much more than a ruler. This king will be God's anointed. The Lord's chosen instrument to bring salvation to His people. Again, Hannah is singing better than even she knows. 
She's looking forward, yes, to God's raising up of David. That's true. But she's also looking forward even to the day when God would make His King and His Messiah come together in one person. So fast forward with me centuries later to the city of Jerusalem. It's it's close to Passover and a man from Galilee approaches David's city. He's riding on a donkey and the people are laying palm branches in his path. And as this man from Galilee approaches the city of the king, the people begin to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Friends, those joyful shouts testify to God's faithful fulfillment of Hannah's song. She anticipated the coming of God's King. A King who would save. And in His faithfulness, God has raised up that King. And His name is Jesus, the Son of David and the Son of God. So as we close this morning, I pray we would be encouraged that it's true, in God's economy there are no little people. There are only strong people like Hannah who trust in their mighty God. I pray that we would rejoice with our sister Hannah as she declares God's faithfulness. And I pray that we would add our voices to hers in declaring God's praise in the provision of our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts take strength from God's Word and may our mouths be quick like Hannah's to sing God's praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness that has been manifested in the life of Your people from the very beginning until now. We thank You for the testimony of faithful saints like Hannah here in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. We thank You, Father, that her life reminds us that true strength is found and not not in self-reliance, but in faithful, humble dependence upon the Lord our God. Father, make us the kind of people that know You that cling to Your character. Make us the kind of people, Father, who are open and honest in our faith, who hold fast, Father, to the things that we know to be true about You. Father, and through Your Word, even here in the Old Testament, open our eyes to see the greatness and the glory of Christ, Your Son, whom You gave away for us and our salvation. We pray in His name. Amen.